Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me today Dr. C.J. Pascoe to tell us all about her book titled Nice is Not Enough, Inequality and the Limits of Kindness at American High. The book was published in 2022-2023, my apologies, by the University of California Press. And it's a provocative book, I suppose, but an incredibly important one that looks at contemporary high school secondary education in America and makes some really important arguments and provides really useful insights about cultures of kindness, um, about how being kind, being nice, saying all the right things about inclusivity doesn't really go far enough, causes some problems of its own. Um, I could really go on. I found this book absolutely fascinating. So CJ, thank you so much for being with us to tell us all about it. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm so excited to get the chance to talk about it and honored to be asked. Well, before we get into the book, as excited as we both are, would you mind introducing yourself a bit first and explaining why you decided to write this? Uh, sure, thanks. Um, so I'm CJ Pasco, and I'm an associate professor of sociology at the University of Oregon. And uh, honestly, this wasn't the book I set out to write. Actually, <laughs> um, I my my first ethnography had been a book about teenage boys and masculinity, um, which. Uh, may also be accurately described as provocative. And I just want to give your audience a heads up that um, it does have a homophobic epithet in the title. Uh, so I always want to warn folks that, that that's um, uh, on its way before, before uh, folks hear it. Um, uh, the book was called Dude, You're a Fag, Masculinity and Sexuality in High School. And uh, in that book, I, I sort of found two things um, that the uh, young men, um, came into a sense of, of masculinity uh, through two pathways. One was through lobbing these uh, homophobic epithets at one another, um, but another was through uh, sexually harassing girls, right? Um, establishing some sort of masculine dominance over girls and, and their bodies. And, and so what I heard a lot about in that book uh, were things that sounded like flirting, uh, but really looked a lot like violence, right? Like boys grabbing girls' bodies, constraining girls' bodies, flirting with girls' bodies, sort of hitting them and saying really sexist things to them. Um, and that really stuck with me over the uh, ensuing years after I wrote that book. Like, what is going on with kids and romance and dating these days such that um, heterosexual boys and girls think that uh, what looks a lot to me like um, so harassment is a form of flirting and romance. And, and so the original book that I had set out to write was one that looked at uh, teenagers' courtship practices and dating practices and romance practices, both in terms of heterosexuality and the problems I had seen in Dude, and also in terms of the fact that um, between the time I wrote Dude and, and the time I was researching this new book, uh, the digital landscape of adolescent life had totally changed, right? Um, that we 
had uh, Snapchat and Twitter and Facebook had come and gone and they all had cell phones. Um, and so I wanted to know what, what teen dating and romance looked like given, given those shifts. Um, but what I got into American High Trump had just been elected president and teen dating and romance was not what everybody was sort of focused on and thinking about, right? Instead, um, in the U.S., uh, many of the young folks at this particular school and, and, and the faculty were grappling with uh, this uh, shift in national discourse and shift in, in um, our political situation, where we had a, a leader who was sort of espousing racist and homophobic and sexist things on, on a national stage in a way that um, we hadn't necessarily seen before, right, with a level of acceptability that we hadn't really seen before. And so that was what the discussion was about at the high school. And so I sort of suddenly, I sort of pivoted uh, what, what I was looking at to sort of follow where, where those discussions were going. And, and what I began to see at the high school was this sort of language of love and kindness, right? There's no room for hate here. Um, one uh, parent described the, or one student described the school as full of violently accepting people. Um, one mom said that people here will, will accept the bejesus out of you, right? So I heard this line again and again about how accepting and kind everybody was. But what I also kept seeing were, were very real race, class, gender, and sexual inequalities manifesting at the school. And so my question became sort of how at this school full of violently accepting people, um, a school where there's no place for hate, did these inequalities persist, right? Um, and that's really the story I, I then set out to tell in the book. Thank you for explaining that. I think it's always really interesting when books kind of start off as one thing and then become something else. So I think that's a really good foundation for the discussion. And in a similar vein, before we get into the things that you found um, being at the school, obviously with any sort of, well, really any book, but anything that is looking at behavior, ethnography, sociology, anthropology, whatever discipline we want to think about, there are some tricky questions in terms of how we do this research. And especially thinking about kind of the obvious one of like, you aren't one of these high school students, you aren't one of these parents. Like, can you tell us a bit about how you approached the methods for this and how you thought about positionality and relationships within this context? Right. That's a great question. Right. Um, and it's one I've, I've thought about over the course of my career as someone who who is interested in um, adolescence and the social construction of adolescence, right? Uh, we live in an incredibly age-graded society um, in, in the West in general, right? That that uh, we, we seem to, at least in the past 100 years or so, regard with suspicion interactions between adults and, and children. And so we, we, we take our young folks and, and increasingly sort of uh, sequester them in, in these um, educational institutions, right? And, and, and in many ways make, their, um, make public spaces, at least in the States, uh, not very hospitable to, to young folks, right? Uh, we tell them they can't skateboard in public places. We kick them out of libraries. We tell them they can't hang out in malls, right? We don't have a lot of um, age-integrated public spaces uh, in the U.S. And when I set out to do my research initially you know, uh, back in, in graduate school in the early 2000s, that left me thinking a lot, like, well, how am I 
going to talk to young folks? Where am I going to find them? Right. Um, uh, you know, decades of sort of stranger danger, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, meant that researchers of youth had to really think about um, where where we could find young folks to, to sort of hang out with. Um, and then we also had, we and me in particular, right, had to think about the fact that, you know, I'm always going to be entering into these, these situations with more power, right, um, in terms of, of my age. And so what I adopted early on um, in my research was, was uh, and this is in my, my first book, I adopted um, what one scholar calls a least adult identity, right? Which is not to say I acted like a kid uh, by any means, but I did make an effort to distance myself from adults in the school um, uh, and that I let kids know I couldn't get them in trouble, um, that uh, things that they told to me wouldn't then be told to teachers, um, and sort of thought about establishing myself as sort of a safe, if super nerdy, older sister, right? Um, and 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 I looked, and that was early on in my research when I actually looked a lot younger, right? When I would walk through the school hallways early on um, in uh, when I was first researching young folks again, 20 years ago or so, um, I would get yelled at uh, by by uh, security staff in the school to show my hall pass because they thought I was a student because I looked so young. And, and you know, I, I was in my mid-40s when I went back to do this research for, for, Amer- uh, for Nice is Not Enough. And so I certainly wasn't going to be mistaken for a high school student, um, but I did look like a lot of their their parents, right? Um, and what happened when I went to American High was that I found a school where young folks had exceedingly good relationships with their teachers and school staff, right? Um, at one assembly, when the principal was talking to these young folks about um, graduation, he had to warn them that they couldn't come back to school and hang out with their teachers after they graduated, right? It was a place where young folks really liked to be, and, and even the kids who weren't school identified um, tended to say very, very good things about, about their teachers. Um, and so when I went uh, back to do this research at American High, I didn't distance myself from the teachers in the same way, right? Um, instead, I tried to just make myself present for the kids, right? I would just be someone who was there and hanging out all day. And so if they needed someone to talk to, I was there. And that worked really well because it turns out that not a lot of people listen to young folks. And so to have someone whose job more or less is to just sort of sit there and hear what they have to say, um, mitigated a little bit of that sort of uh, age-graded power relationship. Um, and I also tried to sort of serve as a, a resource for them, right? If they had questions about uh, college or grown-up life, um, or even for the queer kids being queer, right? One student said to me that I was the only out adult queer person he knew, right? Um, and that that was really meaningful to him to just see that I was sort of having a normal good life um, that wasn't sort of uh, shaped by a homophobia um, in, in any super dramatic way. Um, so while there's no getting around the fact that there's this power differential, right, between uh, adults and young folks. Um, I think there are ways to 
mitigated a little bit, right? In that um, I did constantly let them know that I was not there to report uh, their behavior to to school authorities or or um, city authorities, right? Which is the other thing they have to worry about. And and I think that went a long way in just establishing rapport um, and letting them know that it was my job to to amplify their voices, which is how how I see my job in many ways, right? Yeah. No, thank you for explaining that. I think it gives a good picture of kind of a bit of the school dynamics that of course we'll get more into. Um, but also I think given how many people listening to this are likely to be doing research themselves in these sorts of ways, it's just really helpful to you know, hear from someone who's done this and thought a lot about it to understand the different options. So given that we now have this foundation of why you wrote the book and kind of how you went about it, I'd love to get into some of the particular things that you found. Um, and I don't think I'm quite doing it in chronological order, but <laughs> we'll see if we can get a decent highlights tour of a bunch of your points. So first off, um, obviously, in what you've told us before, there's Trump being elected, there's issues around kind of what does heterosexual dating look like, and how sort of safe and inclusive is it? It's the idea of we accept the bejesus out of you, which I read very much as a comment of like, we do this and we know that that's not true of everyone, right? Like we're sort of special and different in some way that we're so welcoming here. So it was fascinating to read in the book how the word political was used. What counts as political at American Guy? Because to be honest, it wasn't really what I was expecting. So can you tell us about what counts as political and how this definition starts to poke at this idea that there are limits to kindness? Right. So that's so well phrased. Thank you for asking the question that way. Um, because this is one of the first things that struck me during my time there, right, um, was the use of this word political to curtail uh, what topics were appropriate to talk about at school and what topics weren't. And I think the moment where it, it really hit me that I needed to pay attention to how the concept of the political was being used uh, was at the senior assembly halfway through my first, or sorry, halfway through my research there, but at the end of my first year there, um, at the end of the year, there's this assembly where the seniors get sort of celebrated, right? The teachers do a special dance for them and they run through a tunnel of the teacher's arms at the end of the assembly. And it's a sort of jubilant occasion where we're celebrating the fact that the seniors are moving on to this next um, step of their lives. And um, when I got to this assembly, uh, the show choir was singing, as they usually did, uh, the national anthem uh, at the beginning of the, the assembly. And, and um, I, I found myself standing at the entrance to the big um, gym that, where, where the assembly was taking place. Um, and by the entrance, uh, was, that's where most of the teachers and staff stood as well. So I was standing with them, as I usually did. And as the show choir was singing, I see this rustling out of the corner of my eye. And I look over and one of the teachers starts to kneel down, right? Um, and slowly several other teachers uh, follow him as he kneels. And, and of course he's kneeling um, uh, to sort of participate in, uh, by that point, a uh, multi-year protest that had been begun by football player Colin Kaepernick um, to police, uh, to protest racist police violence, right? Um, and uh, and so I watched them kneel, and and then when the song ends, they the teachers stand up, um, and and the the assembly continues. 
Um, and it seemed like, okay, well, that, that makes sense at a school that is uh, sort of dedicated to social justice and everybody accepts the Jesus out of one another, right? It makes sense that, that, that staff would participate um, in this uh, protest against racist police violence. And the fallout of it told a different story, right? Um, in the days and weeks that followed, um, not only uh, was there pushback in the community in general against what these teachers had done, they each received uh, letters from the district saying that if they were, that, that quote, political behavior is prohibited during the school day and that, that if they were to continue engaging this sort of behavior, that they could lose their jobs, right? And, and, and so it struck me that this behavior was called political. Right? Again, at a school um, where there are signs everywhere saying that there's no room for racism, um, uh, it's full of violently accepting people, right? It seemed to me that that we'd all be on board with a protest against racist violence. Um, but yet that that behavior was getting labeled as as political. And I and I saw this word political then get used in a variety of circumstances in the school when a teacher uh, wrote an email out to staff saying he was concerned about um, increasing racist and nativist rhetoric um, and what that meant for the safety of their students. He was told to discontinue using email for political purposes. Um, or when a bunch of students had planned uh, uh, to participate in a uh, global youth strike to demand action on climate change, they were told that such behavior was political. Um, or when students planned a walkout um, to demand safer learning conditions um, and, uh, and demand gun control, uh, they were told that such behavior was political, right? And so what I began to see when was that when this language got used, what it typically addressed was not sort of politics with a capital P. It was not sort of partisan politics. It wasn't about um, our political parties here in the States, right? Democrats and Republicans. Um, it was about things that had to do with resource distribution, with inequality, and with power, who had it and who didn't, right? And this is something that Andrew Perrin uh, points out in his research on, um, on political talk, right? What do people mean when they mean something is political? Well, they mean it has has to do with inequality, resource distribution, or power differentials, right? And that's very much what I saw at this school. Um, as one uh, student at the school pointed out, there is a young Republicans club at the school. So clearly there's room for political talk at the school, but not this kind of talk, right? Not talk that has to do with inequality and, and power. Um, and so I think what then happens, what I sort of uncovered at American High, is that the language that then fills in for political talk, which the school has decided is off limits, is a language of love and kindness, right? If you can't actually address power and inequality, what you can address is loving one another, right? Um, and so what happens then is that that sort of love and kindness is provided as a solution to social problems when what the young folks are demanding is that we address these social problems head on and the school is sort of curtailing that ability to address it by saying we can't talk about political things. Hmm. Which is such an interesting, I just found that very surprising honestly yeah. and quite fascinating. Um, but also consistent with some other things you talk about in the book. So the next thing I'd love to turn to is related in a lot of senses. Um, you talk about there being two different approaches to student safety at American High. Can you tell us what they are and why they're 
a bit disjointed, a bit contradictory, don't quite go together? Yeah. Um, so <laughs> the, what I came to see at American is that this is a school that is looking to protect the people in the school, but they do so through a process of securitization of what, what scholars call securitization or hardening of targets, if you will, um, rather than addressing the social problems that might give rise to uh, such threats, right? So let me give you an example of, of what I saw. Um, the, the young folks and teachers at American High, like um, young folks and teachers across um, the United States, participate in yearly uh, active shooter drills, right? And these are drills um, in which sometimes uh, there are live um, sort of role plays of um, active shooters where um, actors and sometimes actual police run through schools and fake a school shooting and the teachers and young folks have to respond to it. Um, but other times it means that young folks walk through a slideshow of uh, what to do uh, should someone um, be coming into the school and wishing to do them harm, right? So they learn how to barricade doors, they learn how to swarm an attacker, um, they learn how to um, uh, fight back should that be the only option, um, which is pretty horrifying to watch, to sit in a room full of young folks preparing um, for deadly violence is something I can't fully explain the horror of. Um, and uh, at one point when I was sitting in a classroom and we we're walking through one of these slideshows, the te a teacher turns to me and asked me, like, CJ, can you tell me stories uh, about lockdowns you experienced when you were growing up? And, or could, can you share that with the class? And I think she was trying to sort of humanize what was happening in that class. And and I had to say back to her, we didn't do that, right? When I was in high school in the 80s and 90s, we didn't have these sorts of slideshows or these sorts of um, uh, programs because this wasn't a form of violence uh, that, uh, so these wide scale rampage school shootings weren't forms of violence that existed in the same way that they, they do now. And, and I would watch as I would sit through these slideshows with these young folks, I would watch their shoulders sag. I would watch them grow silent. I would watch them put their cell phones away. I mean, these are kids who are constantly on cell phones, texting each other and sending memes and giggling, right? And the cell phones would go away at these times and they would just look depleted and a little bit broken. Um, and so I, I kept thinking about how the act of protecting these young folks from violence was actually a form of violence in and of themselves, right? Um, and, and I think what was sort of especially interesting about uh, these sorts of trainings was that when the young folks at American um, decided to, to sort of take gun violence into their own hands, right, what that meant was that they worked to organize themselves to participate in, in um, a nationwide protest uh, about gun violence, right? Called the March for Our Lives. And so kids worked together for weeks to put together participation in this particular march. It was happening across the country to, um, on the anniversary of, of what was then one of the deadliest school shootings in, in Parkland, Florida. And the kids were told by the principal that they could not participate, or if they did participate in this protest, they would be marked absent from class and that, um, quote, politics in the schoolhouse was not okay, right? So again, we see the sort of politics rhetoric getting used. And so 
what I kept thinking about was the fact that the school was fine sort of training them for deadly violence, but when these young folks wanted to call attention to the social conditions that gave rise to this violence, right, this um, very weak gun control measures, um, a lack of mental health, a lack of a social safety net, right, they were told they couldn't advocate for this. And I think those those um, two approaches to student safety really capture the contradiction that's at the heart of what I saw at American High, where the school is deploying what I came to think of as a politics of protection, right? That they are preparing, they're hardening targets, they're using a securitized approach to, a securitized and defensive approach to protect students from um, threats they see as unpredictable and external. Whereas the students are saying, no, we want to take a more systemic approach, right? That there are re- that 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 much of many of these dangers are predictable and they are systemic, and they're not mysterious. We can actually do things about these um, these problems systemically, right? And they're demanding that something be done systemically. Um, and I think those that really captures the the contradictions that that are at the heart of of what I came to call politics protection um, uh, that the school uses to attempt to keep students safe. And it's not just about safety, that idea of the focus on the individual rather than on the systemic um, comes up in a whole bunch of different ways throughout the book, not just in terms of uh, violence and securitization and safety, but also in terms of, for example, gender. Can you tell us about how systemic inequalities are made to look like individual things when it comes to gender in this regime of kindness? Thank you so much for that question, um, because I think that's that's also at the heart of much of what I saw at at the school, right? Which is the way that um, these inequalities that are systemically built into not only the school but also um, American culture itself get made to look like individual problems, and thus young folks are given individual solutions or have to develop individual solutions to to solve them, right? Um, and so I think we really see this in terms of gender inequality at the school. Um, uh, one of the first things that, that I noticed at the school was that these these um, the young women in the school had formed um, uh, a sort of feminist club, and the name of the club was was uh, the Women Slash Human Empowerment Club. Um, and and crafting club, I think they put in crafting on there sometimes, right? So the the name of the club went from women's empowerment club to women's and human empowerment club and to women's women slash human em- empowerment and crafting club, right? Which is quite a name for a club, and you see me sort of stumbling over it. And at first, this seems kind of silly, right? But I think it captures within it what this regime of niceness looks like, and this the the type of inclusion that that um, gets promoted at the school looks like, right? That these young women, for whatever reason, feel like they can't have a club that just focuses on their concerns as young women, right? Instead, it needs to include all humans, right? The sort of, uh, again, the sort of blanket inclusivity that exists without attending to power differentials that make inclusivity necessary, right? Um, and and then they sort of uh, uh, tamp down the political nature of it um, uh, with, uh, with a sort of gendered practice of, of crafting, right? A, a traditionally sort of feminine um, enterprise, right? And then when you look at what happens in the club, uh, you also start to see this um, inability to address systemic inequalities precisely because 
of this idea that everybody's voice needs to be heard on certain topics and everybody's perspective is equally valid, right? Um, which on the one hand is true, but on the other hand, it can elide inequalities that that make uh, a club like this necessary. And, and so I think of the time, for instance, that in the club, they were having a discussion about sexual assault. And so they're talking about sexual assault, why um, uh, why young folks might not report sexual violence. And at one point, a young man in the club says, well, I think the real problem is uh, that is, is, is the problem of false accusations, right, of young men um, getting accused of doing things they didn't do. And, and the young woman leading the club says something like, well, yeah, no, that's that's a serious problem, right? That's that's a that's an interesting perspective and a serious problem, right? And certainly it is. And also we know that uh, the rate of false accusations around sexual assault are about the rate of false accusations with any other crime. And some studies say it's even less, right? Um, and so what you see happening there is, again, the, the um, clouding of the way gendered violence is systemic and it gets clouded because of this sort of valuing of diverse voices, right? In which diversity doesn't mean marginalized voices. It just means everybody's voices, right? Um, uh, we see something similar when the school tries to um, teach young women about uh, uh, sexual violence um, through these assemblies they have every year about um, uh, sexual violence um, and sexual assault. And what the young women are told in these assemblies is that um, it's, quote, your body, your choice, right? And so it's the sort of feminist slogan about bodily autonomy. Um, but the way it gets used in this assembly, as uh, the assistant principal who's running it says, um, it's your body, your choice. So you have the responsibility to have an exit plan, meaning that if young women are at a party and they feel sexually unsafe, that they need to take responsibility for getting themselves out of there, right? Um and then what we hear from the young women around this is that they never want that even though sort of um, the the teenage girls I talked to at the school tell me sort of story after story of harassment and assault and getting naked pictures from young men. What I hear from them repeatedly is that they don't one girl says, I don't want to be a bully. Right. When she tells the story of a young man who crossed her boundaries sexually, so she doesn't want to have him at parties or gatherings anymore that 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 she hosts. She tells me she doesn't want to be a bully and not invite him. Right. So the idea of even setting boundaries to keep oneself safe then violates these principles of niceness that have been drilled into these kids. Right. And they think of themselves as as bullies. And then another girl, when she's being stalked, says that she doesn't want to be mean or hurt his feelings. So she doesn't get a restraining order against him. Right. She doesn't want to um, hurt the feelings of the young man who who's sort of making her life miserable. Um, and so I think that's this way that that this language of of kindness and and a concept of diversity that has very little to do with inequality um, sort of cloud the the sort of systemic inequalities that that still exist around gender and mean that these young women's lives are really characterized by all sorts of um, gendered violence and harassment and and assault in a way that, that I actually found really surprising, given that I heard similar stories from girls in the early 2000s and, quite frankly, um, experienced and heard similar stories when I was in high school. Right. So it felt the the level of 
gendered harassment, um, sexual harassment, gendered violence felt very stable over the past decades in a way that that was deeply upsetting. Very much so. I think, I mean, I think in your previous answers, you've given us a bunch of really effective examples of how this whole environment is interactionally inclusive, the individual people talking to each other quite often, but organizationally not so much. So I suppose I'm going to kind of combine two of my questions. Like, why is there this gap? Why does this school not have systems that support youth? And to be fair, I don't think that we mean just this one individual school as if it's some outlier. Um, but essentially, it this this gap is very clear from what you've told us. Why? Right. So this is a, a great question. And I'm glad you, you sort of made the point that, that it's not necessarily about American, right? That I don't think the problems we're seeing about at American um, are about American High, necessarily, right? Um, and I name it American High for a reason. Obviously, it's not the real name. And I name it American High because I think it represents dynamics that that are sort of deeply embedded in in U.S. culture, right? Um, so I think it's it's a it's a sort of microcosm of what we see happening um, not only at schools nationwide, uh, but in the U.S. nationwide, right? That we as a country um, don't have a robust way of understanding inequality uh, outside of um, individual effort, right? That, that if things are unequal, they are unequal to the extent that one is not trying hard enough or to the extent that individual people are racist or individual people are sexist or homophobes, right? We have a very difficult time wrapping our heads around the fact that um, these sorts of inequalities may be built into institutions and institutional logics themselves. Um, and that sometimes that's, that's sort of hard to undo. Right. Um, and so what does it look like when um, inequality is built into sort of an institutional logic? Um, well, I, I like to use the drag show as an example, right. Um, at, American High, when I was there, um, the young folks in the Gay Straight Alliance, right, the Gay Straight Alliance is a club um, for uh, queer students and straight and cisgendered allies um, to to sort of learn about queer culture and to sort of celebrate um, um, LGBTQ um, lives, right? Um, and so when I was there, the kids in the club decided to put on a drag show, which is, if you have never been to a high school drag show, it's an amazing event. Um, uh, the kids got trained by local drag queens. They had, there was about 70 people who came, most of whom were parents, which is just the sweetest thing in the world to watch these parents of these queer kids up on stage participating in this deeply meaningful um, queer tradition of, of drag. Right. And and it's and, and the show is hosted by a local drag queen who who gets up on stage and says um, uh, that she would have never been able to do something like that when she was in high school and how happy she is that, that these kids are able to to participate in this queer cultural tradition. And and she even explains what drag is to the audience. Right. She says that most people think drag is this and sort of points to her long gown and and says um, a cisgendered man dressed dressed like a woman. And she said she says to the audience, that's not it drag is the performance of our gender, right? So it's this really cool, both celebratory and educational um, show. And it ends um, after, after sort of multiple um, uh, 
uh, performances by students and some teachers alike. Um, in fact, the one trans teacher in the school uh, does an incredible performance that ends with um, him sort of ripping off a, a shirt that he's wearing. And underneath that shirt is a, is a shirt um, that features the logo of Transsexual Menace, which was the first sort of direct action um, uh, trans rights groups in, in the U, it, it, trans rights group in the U.S., right? So it's a really meaningful, powerful moment of a, a sort of like a queer grown-up doing this incredible thing. Um, and the kids end the show by like dancing to Lady Gaga's Born This Way, right? It was just amazing. And so the kids are all on this high after the show happens. And in the, the weeks that follow, the equity coordinator for the district sends a message to the advisor of, of the gay straight alliance and says like you know i have some concerns about this kind of thing moving forward right and and doing these in the future and and on her list of concerns was that such a show a drag show um might cause students to get might cause uh, trans students to get bullied Right. And the kids of the Gay Straight Alliance, most of whom identify as genderqueer or trans um, um, or gender fluid, uh, sort of start yelling about like, but we're trans. This is our show. Right. Um, and so you can see in that moment the way that sort of this, these sort of systemic concerns about bullying, right, because the school doesn't want people to be bullied, then get translated into an un, a, a complete misunderstanding of queer culture that then prevent young folks from participating in this queer ritual that is deeply, deeply important, right? Um, and so then drag becomes kind of off limits in a way, right? Even though, and so the effect of this is is similar to what happens at schools that are absolutely just against drag shows because they're homophobic, right? And that's how you see sort of homophobia and transphobia get, get built into an institution systemically, right? So even though the school's super accepting, now the kids can't do drag shows because drag shows, according to the anti-bullying logic of this institution, would cause queer kids to get bullied, even though the queer kids are like, that's not, this is ours, like, we're not getting bullied. And um, the fact that that such a, that the school doesn't call attention to the different forms of drag that happen throughout the school, right, that high status, cisgender white boys do drag for laughs all the time in assemblies, right? But those assemblies are not drag shows, uh, even though the the young men dress like women and everybody laughs at them, right? Um, so it's interesting to see where uh, where the logic about bullying appears and where it disappears. And and we see similar things happen with, with racial inequality, right? At, at a Martin Luther King assembly, uh, one year, a bunch of uh, young folks showed up wearing Make America Great Again hats, right? MAGA hats, these red hats, with these white letters that are very recognizable as symbols of a particular form of nationalism and racism. Um, and they show up at the assembly and sit in the front row where they weren't even supposed to sit wearing these hats while kids on stage are um, talking about um, equal justice and um uh, racial equity, et cetera, et cetera, right? So this really intimidating way. And it never gets addressed, right? The school never addresses it with the students. Um, the parents never hear about it. And so the students are left with the fact that uh, for them, the school is like, well, you get to wear these hats, right? Um, because it's your opinion, right? It's your, uh, your expression of self. And we can't... Um, we can't curtail that 
expression, right? right? We accept uh, everyone, including we accept this. everyone, right? Right. And so, for these young folks, what that means is that this is the sort of organizational deployment of this form of diversity that has very little to do with inequality and everything to do with individual rights. And so, that's a way that sort of uh, racial inequality then gets built into the school systemically, right? That the students have received this message um, that that MAGA hats are simply a form of personal expression um, and that we have to honor the diversity of the MAGA hat wearers, just like we have to honor the diversity of the people who accept um, racial equality. Right. Right. Does that make sense? No, it definitely does. Yeah. Um, Similarly to this, you have some instances in the book where um, there's this idea in school meetings in after school clubs type thing. There's this idea of, Oh, oh, but we don't want to offend someone or, oh, we shouldn't do that because someone might take offense, right? Oh, we don't want to be offensive. And that's obviously in on one level, theoretically a good thing, right? You, the, you, you shouldn't want to offend people, right? But unsurprisingly, given where we're at already with what you've told us, there's some other stuff going on here in terms of how this language is being used, the work that this language is doing. Can you tell us about the language of taking offense? Yeah, right. So I think the language of taking offense is one of the ways that we individualize inequality, right? So if someone, if we're worried about offense, what that means is that inequality is not systemic. It's that somebody says something problematic and somebody else has their feelings hurt by the thing that's problematic. Right. right. It's, it's about not- individual feelings. <laughs> Right. It's about individual feelings rather than it being built into an institution itself. Right. So like, um, for instance, uh, the, the school, like many schools, has these sort of theme nights um, uh, at their football games. Right. Where everybody at the school is told dress in uh, red. Um, that's how we're going to show our school spirit. Right. And so sometimes it's just a color. Um, the school's colors are red, white and blue. So sometimes it's red, white or blue. Right. That that everybody at school dresses in those colors and they support the football team. Other nights, the theme is a little more creative, right? Sometimes it's camouflage. Um, And one time it was uh, safari. And the uh, leaders of the student body uh, send out this message um, that says that, uh, that this is the theme. And, um, you know, there's all sorts of emojis with it that have to do with like palm trees and um, all sorts of, sort of tropical island uh, imagery, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, what sort of follows that is uh, uh, some students go to the administration and and suggest that, that this is not an appropriate um, um uh, theme, right? And and so the administration sits down with student leaders and says, you need to shift your theme. And the student leader's response is to say that they don't want anybody to be offended. So be careful not to dress in offensive ways, right? Um, and so rather than <laughs> sort of, uh, and, and I don't put this on the kids so much as I put it on the administration, right? Rather than addressing the fact that 
plays or luau's or any of these sort of quote unquote um, uh, exotic uh, forms of, of imagery are used uh, to um, both draw upon uh, Western colonial imagination um, and and reduce um, uh, areas that have been colonized to caricatures, right? The administration um, makes this a matter of offense and individual feelings rather than sort of Western might and hegemony, right? Um, and and I think that's a sort of way in which we see the the word offense doing some really really important work, and that it it um, excludes a discussion of power and inequality, and instead makes it about feelings and and not hurting somebody's feelings. And and the young folks at the school see this. And um, two young women actually speak with me at length about how racial inequality at the school is sugar coated in their words, right? And that this is one of the ways in which it's sugar coated is that. Um, Racism becomes a matter of offense um, and not one of of inequality. Right. Individual feelings and also individual behavior. It's up to you to choose the right costume, right? Yes. Yeah, which is interesting. So given all of this, can you tell us about what you mean by the politics of care in this context? Right. Um, So... I found myself uh, when I was uh, working on this book and writing it up, um, continuing continually thinking about two things that happened through uh, during the research of this book. Right, one was when a teacher, Nella, who's a beloved teacher at the school, um, she teaches the school's only ethnic studies class, and and when the young folks were planning to participate in in the uh, March for Our Lives. Um, one of her students looks at her and fearful uh, that he might get punished or his grades might be affected if he participated in the walkout. He looks at her and says, I don't know what to do. And she says, I can't tell you what to do, but you can read my shirt. And she points to her, her orange shirt with white lettering that says, I stand with students. Right. Um, and, and he eventually decides to go on, on the walkout. Um, but she, tells her class that day, there are ways to build systems that support you, right? And she points, for instance, um, to a principal at a neighboring school who changed the bell schedule uh, for school that day so that students could participate in the walkout without missing any of uh, their final exams because the walkout happened to take place during final exams. And and it was this very sort of easy shift, right? He just changed the bell schedule. And so students could make a decision without being, without fearing reper- repercussions, right? Um, and other schools, uh, I, I sort of spoke with other educators actually around the country, and other schools planned whole lessons around these walkouts, right, Um, to help students process what the meanings of them were and help make their own um, decision about whether or not to participate in them, Um, all of which I think are examples of how we can build systems that support young people, right, empowering them to make decisions um, and, and give them language and facts with which to make those decisions. The other a moment I think about that that led me to this concept of a politics of care uh, was uh, a moment about Miss Bay. Miss Bay taught a class that was aimed at first generation college um, goers, uh, and um, students develop a very uh, 
strong attachment to her. She cares deeply about students. She's a first generation college student herself. Um, and, and so students come back to visit her and to speak to, to her classes about, about going to college and what it means to go to college. And, and one of, one time a group of students had come back and one of them said of, of Miss Bay, she loves you guys in a non-psychotic way. Right. Um, and so I, that sort of resonated with me as well. Right. So what, what are ways to build systems that support youth and what does the sort of like non-psychotic love look like? Right. Because I think both of them are about a politics of care. Right. And I think a politics of care, um, uh, building on on scholars Greg Gonzalez and Amy Kapinski, who talk about a politics of care in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic, what they suggest is a politics of care is a politics that puts human needs at the center of policy, right? Rather than um, sort of developing policy that is about um, getting people to do a certain thing, right? So if we think about, say, welfare policy to the extent that it exists in the United States, it's all about incentivizing people to to work, right? Um, Often through punitive measures, right? But a politics of care looks at what people need, right? Do they need food? Do they need housing? How do we systematize these sorts of, um, uh, these sorts of ways of responding to human need? And I think that's what we see both Nella and Miss Bay doing, right? They try to, in their own way, um, exhibit the sort of politics of care, right? So, um, for instance, Miss Bay, when her students want to participate in the global climate strike, um, uh, and they're complaining about not being able to put up posters because they've been told the posters are political, so they can't advertise it that way. And she just sort of quietly holds up her cell phone and is like, I can't tell you what to do, but you have these in your hands, right? Suggesting to them that they might want to organize online versus in school um, uh, to, to, to participate in, in this walkout, right? And so I think what, what happens though at, the, uh, at American and, and I think, you know, um, more generally is that we come to rely on the individual effort of people like Nella and Miss Bay to sort of clear organizational space for um, people who need it, like like these students. And instead, we need to sort of systematize this care, right? So we need to put into place, like when we think about the, the inequalities that are individualized at a place like American High, like say gender inequality, um, what we need in place, right, is at the very least trained sex education teachers, right, which um, most schools in the United States don't have. Um, uh, we need uh, sexual assault trainings that are led by people who are experts in sexual assault trainings, right, not by assistant principals um, who grew up in the 80s and 90s, right, the height of, of uh, what we might think of as, as rape culture, actually, Um we need systems in schools uh, that young women can use um, to uh, ensure to ensure what what uh, scholar Jennifer Fried calls institutional bravery, not institutional betrayal. Right. So when young women do go to Title IX officers in a school, right, they're actually often quite afraid that they're going to be punished um, because some of them have experienced that rather um, than uh, protected from from the uh, harassment or assault they're experiencing. But I would say 
another form of um, care that needs to be introduced, right, is actually a new form of a, a replacement for the forms of punishment that we often use in schools. And again, in, in society at large, right, that, that these young women actually don't want the young men who are harassing them to be punished often. They just want them to understand, right? And that's not really a possibility in the way the school is set up right now, right? We don't have restorative justice practices systematized throughout um, most school systems. Some some schools have pilot programs, but it's not um, systemic in schools or, or in our um, justice system in, in the United States. And and we know that a restorative justice um, approach is less uh, uh, unequal racially. It's less unequal in terms of um, class uh, differences. And it not only sort of, and, and it reduces harm in the future rather than increasing harm, which we know that the punitive justice system, both in schools and out of schools does now. And so I think those are some of the ways we can start to think about a politics of care, right? Which is a way to sort of systematize a response to human needs rather than systematizing inequality, which is what we do now. I think there's a lot for people to be thinking about and hopefully making some changes about from that answer. So I will just end with my final question. Um, this book is available for people to read, which means it's off your desk. Yes. So <laughs> is there anything you might have your eye on to work on next, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's on this exact topic that you'd like to share with us? Oh, yes. I actually have two books that I'm already working on. Um, one is with my frequent co-author, Sarah Diefendorf. We are working on a book um, that's a sociological approach to friendship. Um, uh, so we're gathering people's stories about friendship, um, how they find them, how they keep them, what role they play in their lives, how they end. Uh, so that's one book that I'm working on. And the other is a book about schools as sexual organizations or bear or organizations that bear all sorts of sexual meanings. Um, uh, not necessarily just in terms of sex education, but um, in terms of sexual meanings writ large, um, with a specific focus on schools that uh, sort of have a positive sexual culture and empower young folks sexually, because um, I don't think we have that story right now. And I think it's an important one that, that needs to be told, because I think it's one of those ways that we can actually build systems that support youth. So those are the next two books. Wow. Yeah. Well, both of them sound fascinating, so we'll have to have you back to talk about them. But of course, in the meantime, uh, listeners can read the book we've been discussing titled Nice is Not Enough, Inequality and the Limits of Kindness in American High, published by the University of California Press. CJ, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.